Genesis chapter 9 from verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Jephthah. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jephthah took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Jephthah. May Jephthah live in tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years. Then he died. That's Father's reading. Thank you. Please uh, keep your Bibles handy. We're going to work our way through these verses. Uh, It will be good for you to be able to follow along as we do that. It's a much shorter section than we dealt with last week, um, but there is still a lot here, uh, and it's important for us to see what's going on. Uh, You may have heard this saying, uh, it's it's fairly well known, Uh, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, it's, it's, it's common wisdom, isn't it? If we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, then we are destined to repeat them. We see that on a global scale. We see how our world last century went from World War I through to World War II. A failure to learn, a failure to, to learn what we've, from what we've done wrong. We saw it as uh, we went from Vietnam to Iraq and the same sorts of things happened. Again, a failure to learn. Uh, we, could, we could go through many more situations, couldn't we? But it's not only true on a global scale, it's true on a, a personal scale too, isn't it? I'm sure we can all testify to things in our lives uh, where we have failed to learn from things that we've done wrong. We, we keep repeating our mistakes, uh, even mundane ones. Uh, about once a month I have an urge to eat KFC. We keep repeating our mistakes. <laughs> Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That is essentially the theme of Genesis 9, of the verses that we read earlier. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, If you've been here for most of this series, you may recognise in these verses a cycle that has been repeating itself over and over again. We see people in a good place who then do the wrong thing and suffer the consequence of their actions. And that cycle repeats again and again through the book of Genesis and it does it here again in chapter 9. We've seen already different people in different circumstances doing different deeds but all making the same sorts of mistakes. We've seen it at creation and the fall. We've seen it with Cain and Abel. We've seen it with the flood. This cycle that continues. Is it it possible to break this cycle? Is it possible to to change, to, to stop falling back into this sin and destruction so inevitably? Can we learn our way out of this? Well, Genesis 9 has an answer for us. 
and has a path out of this cycle of futility and a path into a good and firm hope. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we work through these verses. Our passage starts with really what's a snapshot of the post-flood era, verse 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Uh, we, we have a scene here that's eerily reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. We have one man with his three sons and from those three sons will come all the peoples who will fill the earth. They stand there uh, at, the, at the foot of the ark, so to speak, with a world before them that is fresh and clean and empty and it is waiting to be subdued and to be filled as God commanded. As uh, Ellie mentioned, the previous evil generation has been washed away. This is a fresh start for humanity. It is a scene that is brimming with hope. They're standing there under God's blessing. Go forth. Noah is even a man a bit like Adam. Look at verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a garden. He too is, is of the soil. He works the soil. He, he gardens. Uh, he doesn't just plant a, a veggie garden. He plants a vineyard. You know, a sign of prosperity and joy and rest. This is a good scene. Until the very next verse. The taint of sin still lies heavy on the world and we see it still on Noah 2. Verse 21. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. See, Noah can't just use the wine. The wine actually uses him. Uh, He abuses it. He gets drunk, he strips off and he lies naked in his tent for the world to see. But that's not actually the focus of the text. Uh, That seems like a major issue to us and the text makes it clear that it's not a good thing but the focus actually comes later in, in even worse deeds to come. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. See, here is the real issue. Ham is the problem here. He he sees Noah's exposure, presumably he laughs and mocks at him and he goes to boast to his brothers so they can join in on this joke. That is the real problem that the text is pointing out. And that might feel a little strange to us. Uh, We probably look at Noah and say, well, there's the real issue. Ham was just kind of a victim of the circumstances. But the text says no. The text says, no, ham is the issue. And to understand that, what we need to do is understand the difference in cultures between our time and theirs. This is a real problem. Uh, In in Israelite culture, in the culture of those for whom this book was read, nudity was taboo. You just didn't do it. You didn't uncover yourself uh, in front of anyone besides your spouse. It wasn't done. And so to voyeuristically observe someone else's nudity was a major issue. It was a grave offence. But on top of that, honouring your parents was paramount. I mean, after all, it makes it into the law of Israel, doesn't it? Into the Ten Commandments, honour your father and mother. And so to dishonour them was a terrible offence and the punishments for it are very severe. It goes against God's created order of things. It is a terrible thing. See, Ham's deeds here are a big deal. 
And just in case we need a confirmation about how serious they actually are, all we have to do is look at verse 23, at the solution. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. See, the text almost stops here, doesn't it? In, in, in immense detail. It covers how painstaking they were to cover up their father's nakedness, to avoid that, that sin of Ham. But of course, it's too late, isn't it? See, the, the damage is done. We've only got one generation after the flood and already sin is laying heavy on humanity. Even though Ham himself has been through the flood, now he was there in the ark, he's seen the consequences of sin. Even still, it has captured him and even now is twisting him and using him. See, the flood has not fixed him. In this recreation, we've had a refall and sin continues. In some ways, it's a bit like cooking. Uh, I like cooking. I love cooking, in fact. Uh, I don't get to do it near as much as I would like uh, or as much as I used to, but when I get the chance, I really enjoy it. Uh, I love making new things. I love trying things and experimenting, and I am willing to give almost anything a go. Give me enough time and a child-free kitchen. But here's the thing. Say, uh, say you get a new recipe. You are excited about this recipe. You have wanted to cook it, you've seen it before and it sounds amazing, even though it is a little bit tricky. And so you make it, but it's a failure. Well, I mean, you think to yourself, I've obviously done something wrong, it's a hard recipe, let's, let's, let's try it again, I'll fix my mistake. So you do, you make it again, you invest all the time and effort and again it doesn't work. You think, well, it is a tricky recipe, I still must be doing something wrong, I'll be more careful, I'll do everything right, Let's try it again. And so again you make it. And again it's a failure. It's inedible, an absolute disaster. You're going to give up, aren't you? <laughs> You're going to give up because clearly there's an issue here. But clearly the problem is not with you. The problem is with the recipe. <laughs> it's not your fault. Clearly the recipe is faulty. You need to find a new one. And it's what we're seeing in Genesis here, isn't it? You know, This isn't third time lucky for humanity. This is third time failed. It's getting pretty clear where the problem is, isn't it? The problem's not with God, it's not with the world he's made, it's not with the order he's given to humanity, uh, to the world. The problem is with people. The problem is with people's hearts. That's where this fault keeps coming from. That's why even having passed through the flood itself, humanity is still sinful. And no matter how often they start again, the outcome is always going to be the same. It is always going to end with sin and with failure because the heart of the problem with people is our hearts, our hearts that are tainted by sin. Now we might be tempted to say, but that was a long time ago. Now we're talking 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Things have changed. Surely, surely we've learned but of course this isn't just an Old Testament issue, is it? Our hearts are equally tainted today. I mean, we imagine back then, you know, that, that's ancient times, they were, they were barbaric then. We've, we've learned, we've got civilization. 
Actually, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history by some measure. So the problem continues. The problem is not our situation. The problem is not our circumstance. It's not a lack in the world around us. The problem is our hearts. And it is clear that no external change will ever solve that problem for us. Sin is so deeply rooted, we take it wherever we go. That nothing outside of us is going to fix that. Uh, conversion therapies, they're, they're ineffective. They usually are just hurtful. We, we can try and change our habits. We may fix one issue, but we usually just cause another. <laughs> we, we put all our effort in and just end up frustrated. We, uh, we may even move to a new place and only find that our problems follow us. See, nothing external works. That's why even not a flood can make us better. The problem is in our hearts. And as such, we are destined to make the same mistakes. And as we see here, those mistakes lead us down the same path. They lead to hurt and to violence and ultimately to destruction. And we see that in Noah's pronouncement, in the, the hurt and anger he expresses in verses 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. I mean, don't, don't miss just how shocking this is. This is a father cursing his own son, laying this heavy pronouncement on him for what he's done. But you might have noticed something strange here. Ham doesn't actually get cursed, does he? Strangely, Noah curses Canaan, Ham's fourth son. Why? Well, there's two reasons. Firstly, we need to remember who this was written for. Remember, this is Moses writing this book down uh, as revealed to him by God and he's writing it for the nation of Israel who are standing on the brink of the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land filled with Canaanites. See, Noah's giving them a history lesson here. He's saying, those people whom you're going to have to go to war against, this is where they're from. Noah's putting it into context here. Uh, Moses is putting it into context. But secondly, what Noah's doing here is increasing the severity of this. See, no doubt this curse is against Ham, but it is not just against him. It is also against his family. It's against his children. It's on his descendants. See, Noah is saying your actions, your sin has consequences. You have set your family down a path and there is no turning back. Your sons will follow in your footsteps and your sin will characterise them. Sin has consequences and those consequences are ongoing. They continue. Sin is a curse. Every sin is grievous because it is not just against people but as we've seen time and time again in Genesis, it is against our Heavenly Father as well. But Noah doesn't just pronounce a curse. He also pronounces a promise. He makes a distinction between his kids here. Look at verses 26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shen and may Canaan be his slave. See, here is a blessing, a blessing pronounced to Shem, a blessing through the Lord 
Uh, if you've got your Bible, you'll see it's capitalised. It's talking about God's covenant name, the name Yahweh, the name by which he reveals himself to his people and establishes relationship with him. See, what Noah's saying is Shem knows God. Shem is in a relationship with God. He has a special place in God's plan. And as a result, Canaan will serve him. But there's good here for Japheth as well. Uh, And the good will come to Japheth through his brother, through Shem. Uh, His territory will be extended, but he'll dwell in the tents of Shem. That is, come under his blessing, come uh, alongside his protection. Uh, Of course, again, Noah's not just talking about those brothers in particular. He's looking to the future. He's looking to their offspring. See, there is good here still. Noah is remembering the promise God made. Noah is remembering what God said to Eve, that there will be a line of hope, that one day there will be a descendant who will be a rescuer, a snake crusher. And that, problem, that promise is still true. And now that line is Shem's. His is the line of promise. His is the family of hope. I don't know if that feels like bad parenting to you. <laughs> Noah making these sorts of distinctions between his sons. I mean, is it, is it favoritism? You know, Shem, you're the, you're the line of promise. You're the one who gets the hope. You're favoured. But is it? Is it bad parenting? I mean, we, we, we can't parent, can we, without making distinctions between our children. Our, our children are different. To, to ignore that would be to do them a disservice. Uh, we, we could force Jethro to play ballerina <laughs> and we could force Amira to play with a ball just to you know, be fair, even things out. But they're not going to be super impressed. <laughs> I can tell you that. They are different. Uh, it's okay to treat them differently. And that's what we're seeing here as well. There will only be one line of promise, but it's not so much Noah making that choice. It's not Noah, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, yep, you're the one. No, what Noah's doing here is recognising that God has already made a choice. God has already identified the line of promise. That's why at the start in verse 26 he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. See, God has already chosen Shem to be his, to establish a relationship with him. Noah's merely acknowledging that choice and saying, this is what it's going to look like. Blessing and promise. Ham is cursed. Japheth is blessed by proximity to Shem. But Shem and his line are the line of hope, the line of promise and the line by which blessing will come. And as we fast forward through history, we we see that played out. If you cast your eyes over Genesis 10, you'll see that sure enough, all the baddies in the Bible come from Ham. Uh, In chapter 10, verse 6, uh, Cush, Mitzrayim, which is another word for Egypt, Put, Canaan, Uh, From them come Babylon and Assyria. This is all Israel's enemies. There's forever going to be conflict and hardship there. But from Shem, from Shem comes Eber. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 24. Uh, That might not mean much to you, but that's the same word as the word Hebrew. That is the line of God's people. From Shem, this, this line continues. The promise goes with them. Uh, Of course, it's a troubled line. As humanity expands, it becomes wayward, including the line of Shem. We're going to see that next week when we look at the Tower of Babel and all that happened there. But what we see after that is, then it starts again. God again starts with one, one son of the promise, 
In chapter 12 we see Abram, soon to be Abraham, and to him the promise is repeated, but not only repeated, it is fleshed out. From him will come a people. From him will come blessing to the whole of the world. And as soon as we get to the very next book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, all of a sudden that people numbers in the millions. The, the promise is coming true. The line of promise is in a good place. Until, of course, we read the rest of the Old Testament and find that those people stuff it up again and again. And that terrible cycle of Genesis, disobedience, rebellion, destruction, it continues time and time again for that people too until they are as good as wiped out and scattered over the face of the earth. And it's only then that we come to the New Testament. And as Matthew and Luke in particular draw out for us, that line of promise is almost gone. In fact, out of millions, it's been reduced to one. One line, one man, who is a bit different than those who'd gone before. He too receives the promise of God. He has the blessing repeated to him, but rather than rebel and, and fall away like, like everyone before him, he actually lives up to it. He shows perfect obedience to God. He is the one of promise. He is the one of hope. But surprisingly, despite his perfection, despite him having done everything right, he still suffers. He still dies under the penalty of sin. Is, is the cycle repeating? Is it that hopeless? Well, it's not because that's not the end, is it? That man rises again. And upon rising, he declares that that promise stands that that promise, that hope is still alive. But now it's different because now it is not just for one amongst many. Now it is extended. It is sent to the whole of the, all of the nations. It's not one line of promise. It is for every tribe and tongue and people under the sun. See, the cycle is broken there. We are not destined to always end in destruction. Now there is a fresh start. Now there is life and life forever. So Galatians 3 says this, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So Jesus is the true heir of that promise. He is the fulfilment of the line of promise. But here's the thing, Galatians continues, and it says, You are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. And if it, as if that wasn't clear enough for us, it says in the next verse, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, you can be part of that line of promise. You will not be forever excluded. It can be yours, that, that hope, that blessing, that life. It can be yours simply by faith in Jesus. See, that the story that we see the start of here in Genesis is that God remains faithful. He never wavers from his promise. Even when, humanly speaking, it looks lost and far gone, God has not forgotten. Not only does he remain faithful, he remains gracious. For he sends his true heir, the true heir, to take the curse of rebellious sinners, to break that cycle and to open the promise to all who would put their trust in him.
that we can belong to it. See, we in Jesus do not need fear the consequences of our sin. The, the destruction, the curse that is inevitable for it doesn't fall on us. It falls on him. He's already taken it. And in doing so, he's closed. He's broken that cycle for us. But neither need we doubt our place in the world. Uh, the consequence of Canaan, the, the rejection, the exile, that's not ours, even though we deserved it. We should have been on the outer, but instead in Jesus, we're now God's people. We're in fact his children, his chosen sons. But what's more for us, real change is possible. Because Jesus has broken that cycle and we are not doomed to repeat it. Galatians continues, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. See, there is something radically different for Jesus' people now, something that wasn't true before the, before the flood, something crazy. God's Spirit lives in our hearts. God himself dwells in us. The Spirit powerfully reminds us who we are. It says to us, we're sons of God. We're not rejects, we're not second thoughts. We are precious to him. We are chosen by him. We belong. And the Spirit powerfully works in us. He takes God's word, he applies it to us. He, he uses it to transform us, to, to cut out sin, to make us new, to help us to live up to our family resemblance. So because of him dwelling in us, there is no sin that we should resign ourselves to struggling with forever. We, we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, this is, this is what I'm going to struggle with the whole of my life, because that is not what the Bible says. God's powerful spirit of life lives in you and he brings real change. Jesus has broken you out of that cycle of sin. Not only its consequences taken, but its power over you shattered. And his power living in you to change you, to make you new, to transform you. So fight. It doesn't promise that this is going to be easy. We're not able to simply snap our fingers and, and be different. Now Galatians says, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, walk close to Him and you will live like Him. Feed on spiritual food, that is the word He's given us. Speak to your loving Father in prayer. Immerse yourself in spiritual things with, with God's people so that together we can overcome sin, together we can fight this fight, we can walk with the Spirit and live up to the new family that we belong to. See, because of Jesus, this cycle of despair and destruction of sin that we've, we've seen in Genesis time and time again and throughout history, it is shattered. We are not doomed to repeat the mistakes of history before us. We are not destined to repeat that futility. We are not destined for the consequences of our sin. We are destined for glory. A day when not only is the sin around us wiped out, but the sin in us as well. A day when perfection will reign, where a new creation, a new start will come that will not descend as the first one did, but that will continue perfect forever. That is the promised blessing of Genesis. And that is ours in Jesus. Today, 
and every tomorrow that will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you have not abandoned us to our rebellion, our futility and ultimately the destruction we deserved. We praise you for you have been faithful to your promises. You have been merciful to rebel sinners like us. And all we have to do to know that is look at Jesus and see it clearly. Father, we thank you that he took the punishment that we deserved, that in his death and resurrection he broke the cycle of sin. We thank you that he adopts us into your family, that we can be heirs of promise, that we can know that your spirit lives in us. Father, may your spirit work powerfully in us. May he assure us continually and give us confidence of who we are in him. And may you help us to keep in step with him, not resigned to the same sin over and over again, but seeking his power for lasting change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.